While you're here, please take a moment to subscribe and rate our show. It takes just a minute, but really helps to support us. And if you'd like to join us in the work we are doing, you can become a patron for as little as $5 a month and help to carry the financial burden of honoring these stories on this platform. Thank you for daring to listen to these incredible voices. People and organizations who admit to a problem will often find that a huge weight is lifted, but they'll often resist this as long as possible. A large Presbyterian church in the South felt this burden, recognizing that they were mired in long-term toxic traditions and septic patterns that were hard to break with. It took a group of representative members at a congregational meeting, including an elder father of the church, a coffee elitist millennial, and a working mom, to have the courage to approach the mics and say what needed to be said. We are sick, and we can't settle for Band-Aids anymore. Sometimes health begins with the prophetic act of truth-telling. Today, we are sharing a recent conversation that Jay and I got to have with professor, author, and therapist Chuck DeGroat, and that was a portion from his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. We are honored to get to hear more of his heart for the church and those who have been hurt within it. So join us as we dream together about a world where truth-telling is viewed as beautiful and everyone has a seat at the table. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. Hello. Today, we're super excited to have Chuck DeGroat with us. And maybe I'll give you guys a little backstory of why we invited him to come talk. If you go to our resources, you'll actually find his book in our resources for the podcast because it is so unbelievably helpful. His book was a huge part of me being able to name things in my own story. We are super excited to just offer him as a resource in this episode for you guys to hopefully find some healing, maybe some vocabulary to use for your own stories, your own situations, and also to just talk through what is narcissism? Why is it so prevalent in especially church planting networks? If he has any (laughs) knowledge of that, I think he does. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but also I would love to see what you think, Chuck, about where we can go forward and how we move forward and what does healing look like collectively for us? What do we do with this information? So welcome. We're so glad to have you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you've narrowed that um, (laughs) to just one or two things. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we'll be talking for the next yeah. year. <laughs> I'm just yeah. kidding. We'll see what we can accomplish. <laughs> yeah. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for what you do, really. So I wanted to jump in too, Chuck, because like, I know Jonna engaged with you on Twitter initially with our uh, situation where we were looking for some help with our church because we were going through a situation with our pastor who we've shared, our former pastor we've shared on the podcast, and we were trying to navigate 
what we wanted to do because we felt like we were in an unhealthy situation. So like, when are you typically engaged by churches or walk us through what, what does that look like for you on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. Well, so probably that, that increased with the narcissism book, right? I mean, I had been doing this for a number of years and, and going back, you know, my own story of, of being impacted by narcissism in the church goes back 20 years. Right. So, um, I was involved in some church planting within um, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, my former denomination, for for a number of years. And as a therapist, early on, I had some of the language, like going back even to the late '90s. Um, I was I was pretty deeply involved with issues around emotional and spiritual abuse, right? So I was seeing women in this kind of uh, Presbyterian complementarian context who are coming to me, elders' wives, pastors' wives in particular, saying, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. And so I I sort of dove in in the late 1990s. um, And it's always been a part of, uh, just to come full circle to your question, it's always been a part of my vocation in a way. uh, About five years ago or so, I I worked with a very large uh, church and in, in kind of more of a conservative Baptist tradition, doing some consulting. And it was in that situation that a, a group of pastors said to me, hey, it would be really helpful for you to write something that would kind of spell out this stuff so that we would, you know, we just have sort of a guidebook, a diagnostic so that we knew like this, 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 and this, all this matters, you know. And so since then, since I wrote it, it's sort of like, um, as you guys know, Me Too, Church Too, Wade Mullen writes, Scott McKnight, Laura Wright, Diane Langberg, there are a number of us who've been, you know, sort of writing in this area. And it's, and it's like, we're in the, what I call the reckoning now. I'm sure other people are calling it the reckoning. I think someone else just called it the apocalypse, but we're we're in this season of massive reckoning. So it's, it's sort sort of like, yeah, I I get many emails every day now um, with people reaching out, like, like you guys saying, Mm -hmm. what do we do in, in this particular situation? Yeah. So that's where I find myself often somewhat overwhelmed by that. It's so overwhelming. And it feels like we're seeing just like story after story. And for every story that we see come out to all of us, how many stories are not public right now or not coming out? I would love if you'd be open to it, just talking a little bit about what you see in church planning networks with narcissism and maybe like, why do you think it is so prevalent in church planning networks because clearly we focus our our main focus why we started was we were all part of a church planning network our churches yeah. all were so the stories we hear have kind of like this same similar line of behavior and leadership traits we actually like many times when i have a storyteller come for like an initial call we'll be laughing and crying together because it's like where's the playbook? Where's the playbook? And actually what's hilarious is when you read Chuck's book, you're like, this is the playbook. (laughs) They do all of these things. So I'm curious, like, what do you think it is about church planning networks? Yeah. So that's sort of a multi-level answer. It's complicated, right? Because on, on the one hand, I would have said 20 years ago, they just need to get therapy, these pastors. And church planning networks need to take mental health more seriously. Pastors need to be more engaged with themselves. They need to do 
I mean, I, I got into the Enneagram back in the late 1990s. So, I mean, I, I've been very interested in the intersections of these things for a while. That was sort of the simplistic answer back then, right? If pastors were in counseling and church planning networks took counseling seriously, it, it'd be okay. Now, my much more complex answer gets to uh, the history of the United States and manifest destiny and a kind of conquest mentality. I mean, that's that's the more complex answer is really complex, right? Because we're swimming in the waters of narcissism and these church planting networks are operating from a playbook that that we've been operating from. I say we, white European Americans, males uh, predominantly for a long, long time. And so, so it's not as simple as saying what I used to say and that just get them some counseling. Or as I often say, let's take character more seriously. I, I do think the way we think about success in ministry, the way we think about ministry as, as uh, in terms of metrics, winning, the, the kinds of people that we invite into church planting, the kinds of assessments that we use and how they set us up for a particular kind of leader, all of that is implicated in this, but I but I do think we, we've got to look at a kind of larger cultural issue, mm-hmm. and we've got to say we're essentially planting this kind of Americanized, Westernized, up into the right, uh, manifest destiny. I, I see it, by the way, I've been involved in a couple of city center church plants where there's this idea of the, you know, the white male church planter who, th- th- I've been in the room where we said, that's a secular city. And we need to go bring the gospel to that city. And so we're going to plant a church in that city without asking, what is God already doing there? And what about mm-hmm. you know those 14 black churches or Hispanic churches or Asian churches that have been there for 150 years or more? Maybe Jesus has been doing something through them. So there's a lot of entitlement, a lot of presumption, a lot of grandiosity. So I'm, I'm saying, you know, it's, it's sort of baked in. It's not just about the church planter and his character or her character. It's, mm-hmm. it's about a... It's about the waters that we're swimming in to some extent. I know that's somewhat vague, but you can tease that out if you want. It sounds like when you say that, it's more of a theology issue. Cultural, cultural issue. It's a theo- theology would be teasing out in a different, yeah. in, 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 in a, sort of a, another direction, yeah. right? If you start to look at a kind of more patriarchal yep. and complementarian theology and how that sets up us up for authoritarianism and abuse of power. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds yeah, like what me and Jay just casually talk about yeah, when we're just yeah. so frustrated. <laughs> what, what that does, though, I mean, even your response. I mean, so I'm, I'm, I work with trauma a lot, you know, so there's a sense of, well, that's overwhelming, right? Yeah. You feel somewhat powerless because it's just a matter of getting church planners therapy. You know, we could find some rich guy who would like to, you know, pay for therapy for church planters and say it's for the kingdom and make sure that that happens. And I'm all for therapy. The problem is, is the church planters that I was working with 20 years ago weren't getting therapy. Now they're all in therapy and they all know their Enneagram and they all um, have done all kinds of personality tests and they've got references from multiple therapists and they're still narcissistic and abusive. (laughs) Yeah, that's something that I... um have like been noticing personally is like a lot of the people that we, we don't tell the names of pastors purposely because the, the right. goal of our podcast is not to one, put pastors on blast Two, yeah. it's to platform victims and to give them their voice back. And they don't need to name the person in order for them to name their experience. Yeah. But 
I know the pastor's names and I see them and they're retweeting you. They're retweeting Diane Langberg. They're retweeting Scott McKnight. And it's so disheartening to me because on the outside, it looks like, oh, they're saying all the right things. But then behind closed doors, none of that stuff is really happening. None of that like emotional quotient is actually there in these settings. And I don't even know what we do with that. Like, I don't either. <laughs> I don't even know how you respond to it. I mean, honestly, as, a, as someone who, I guess, sees the carnage, right, or the wreckage, but then you see the people that are causing that basically washing their hands. I don't even know what in the world to do with that. Yeah, and that that's really complicated because I, I see that sometimes too. I'll see who retweets or something like that. I'll be like, yeah, I just got a long email about you the other day, you know, and... Um, so we're dealing with something that's obviously um, a lot larger than us, right? There is this kind of reckoning. And I, yeah. I do think sometimes there, we dupe ourselves into thinking, I, I might, oh, if I write a book or if I start a counseling center or whatever it might be, then that's the solution. Or we change the assessment that we use for church planters. Well, that's it. And it's a lot bigger than that. And I, I think that there is this there is this moment of reckoning, and it's really uncomfortable for for, for a lot of folks who have power in institutions, right, in churches and institutions, because with that, there is this growing distrust of the church and of clergy. There are people pulling out of churches, pulling their money out of churches. And there's some of this that, you know, if you, you sort of trust that God is in control in some benevolent way, <laughs> you've got to believe that th- this is going to be, what, five years, 10 years? a couple of decades, how long is it going to take for this reckoning to happen? And can we trust that the dying is re- really going to lead to to new life? You know, so let's not, yeah. for me, I don't want to settle for s- small or simplistic or pragmatic solutions to this, just a little assessment change here, a little, you know, tweak a little therapy there. Yeah. I want to say, you know, maybe it all has to come crashing down. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that, by the way, as someone in an institution teaching future pastors, you know, Um, and I'll say this to students, I'll say this to future pastors, like the whole thing may need to come crashing down and you may need to find yourself in some bivocational space in some small house church for a while. And that may be what it is, you know, that would be beautiful too, actually. Like, yeah, as believers, I think we should all hope that anything that does not resemble what God has called us to comes crashing down. Like that's the whole goal, right? That's the pursuit of holiness. So yeah, that's right. it shouldn't be scary. That should be exciting. But if you hold power, <laughs> that is a really, really scary thing. Well, we always we always hear too. With this, um, we hear this a lot from our storytellers. Is there's when they bring accusations or, or issues about leadership to the church elders or leaders, they're always told, you know, well look at the look at the fruit, look at what they're doing, the the right. good fruit, and you know, John and I are always like. Yeah, but the tree is rotten. Like the tree is yeah. completely rotten. And you said something in your book about I want I read it the other day. I read the quote the other day and I thought it was great. Oh yeah, sometimes health begins with the prophetic act of telling the truth. I think that was yeah. That was I think it was in your book. I maybe paraphrasing. But like I I always feel like and I'd love your opinion on this is that I know that part of this is we we want to save the system in some sense, because we have other jobs on the line too. other people who work really hard for the church who are not abusing people like their, their jobs could be on the line too. But that, that line struck me because it's like, yeah, maybe in the short term, but in the long term, you're going to all pay for this. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. So after after the narcissism book came out, um, I got a phone call from an old colleague from a, a long time ago, back when I got fired and the presbytery didn't have my back, you know. And he, he, he didn't call about that. I thought, oh, oh my goodness, this person is calling to say he's sorry. <laughs> we, we're, we were going to d- deal with it. No, none of that, um, which was sad. But he did say, hey, I think I remember you probably like 15, 16, 17 years ago saying there's a problem with how we're developing and deploying church planters. And, you know, I read your book and we've had church planter after church planter after church planter do great things for the kingdom, just like you were saying, Jane, mm-hmm. like, you know, and really bless people. And then, of course, and then we find out about the fill in the blank, whatever it is, money laundering, the affair, the abuse of power. And we're not really sure. So what were you saying 17 years ago? You know, that kind of thing. And that's really discouraging. But it also gives, for me, it was this sense of, of um, two things happened around that time. One was I realized the trauma was still in my own body from, from 20 years ago. And I, I've gotten some therapy. I mean, I've done inner work, of course, over the years. But it was like, wow, trauma stays in your body for a long time. And I'm waking up the morning of a book being published scared, you know, wondering mm-hmm. what the blowback will be. And the second thing is, is it takes a long time for people's eyes to open. Um, if you're a person of color right now and you look back to the civil rights movement, you know, and you, you talk about the long arc of justice w- with what we've seen in our, our, particularly in the United States of the last few years, right? It's sort of like, how long, oh Lord, for the reckoning to happen? So that's re- really tough. I hear that all the time, Jay. Uh, but but look at the fruits and look. Yeah, short term, I think there 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 might be some fruit. I don't even know how we define fruit anymore. So, I don't either. <laughs> I, I don't even know if that's fruit. But if that's what you want to call it, you know, the church exploded to six hundred people or something or a thousand. But right. what you and I, what all of us see on this call, is the damage um, behind the scenes, right? The the bodies behind beneath the buses, right? We, that's what we see. So we deal with the carnage, the debris field. We're in triage. We're in the tents with bloodied people, and that's that's the hard part of this, right? Is is um, I want to say, oh yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, some stuff happened. And do you do you realize that um, for the last week I've gotten like thirteen calls, and it's been all triage, and there are people really hurting, and they're bloodied, and they're bruised, and there's a massive debris field. Mm-hmm. We we were always told um, in a lot of the stories that we're told, you know, especially within the Acts 29 network, is these pastors are really, uh, really pressed on growth numbers. You know, one of the things at our church was we weren't growing enough. And what was yeah. what's ironic about that is that at the time we had a very healthy core, uh, you know, consistently 150, 200 people, uh, members, healthy giving, healthy community. Um, I mean, I should say healthy. I don't know. I mean, and meaning that we didn't have a lot of, ac- we didn't have accusations flying around, but we had at least healthy dialogue within the community that happened when there was conflict. And and now that same church is, I mean, I don't know how many members they have, but 90% of the church left. And I, I always yeah. just go back to like, if we just shifted away from worrying about the numbers, like where in the world did the numbers come into play? Because that, to me, is such a big 
it's just the opposite of what we need to be doing when we're talking about planning churches is worried about the numbers. I mean, how does yeah. that play into this whole, uh, not only narcissistic pastor, but what you talk about this on just bigger yeah. culture where we're so focused on numbers in these programs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, there's a book I'm blanking on the author right now, written by some historian called the patient ferment of the early church. Right. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. about this story that we tell often of, very small churches. I mean, a mega church would be like 20 back in the day or 25, right? People gathering around the table, women and men who are engaged in acts of justice and mercy that are really radical. People, I mean, people coming to faith because they're seeing something really good happening. You know, mm-hmm. um, they're seeing the least of these cared for. And mm-hmm. And, and that we know, you know, we know that, that that is kind of the dominant story until you get to, to the story of empire, right? And Christendom and, you know, Constantine, which has been like the, the dominant story for the last 1700 years, let's say approximately, right? And so this is our mentality. Let's just say this is not just an American thing, but this is in this sign conquer and Toito and Nike, you know, put the sign of the cross on your, on your shield and take your sword and let's, let's crusade, um, let's c- conquer, right? That becomes the mentality, and you think about that as a mentality within the church planning world. I'm not fundamentally against church planning, but but you think about church planning with this kind of warlike mentality. You think about mm. even the the names of some of the networks, you know, even a name like the Gospel Coalition, you know, mm. or the Alliance, um, or I, you know, I'm not trying to call it particular, but like we use these kind of militaristic kinds of names, yeah. even right. And so it is about um, adding territory. Remember the prayer of Jabez, expand my territory. Uh, yes, you know, yes. Expanding territory, taking people for for Christ. And there's something about that, that if we if we just took a look at what what's all baked into that, like I, I hope we'd gasp and say, my Lord, what have we done? What have we done in the name, in your name, you know, the one who went to the cross and this sort of nonviolent act of surrender of, um, that we thought that we we actually weren't supposed to take up our crosses, but we were supposed to crucify mm-hmm. at some level and conquer. And man, it's we've gotten it so twisted, and it's going to take a long time t- for that to be undone, right? Mm-hmm. But I I'm I'm a little afraid just because I'm seeing. I mean, I, I wonder probably Scott McKnight, Laura Berenger, and Diane and Wade and some of the others who Bostovigian would probably say what we're seeing right now are folks doubling down, pastors doubling down, networks doubling yeah. down, sort of like saying, well, you're the enemy, Chuck, because, you know, you're against pastors. I'm like, I'm yeah. an ordained minister. I've been a pastor in, in a couple of cities, and I'm not against pastors. <laughs> you know, the cra- that's against- the craziest part to me of all of this. Like, I mean, people would say that we are against pastors. A lot of people would say we're against pastors, or a lot yeah. of people tell us we're not Christians. Yeah, okay. Well, clearly, but, <laughs> but. clearly, <laughs> gosh, what blows my mind is like the fact us saying hard things doesn't mean that we don't care about pastors. It's that, well, clearly our biggest emotional expenditure is going to be with the victims of this. Like the low end of the power dynamic is where Jay and I and this podcast exist. And that's where we will always exist. But that doesn't mean we really truly believe that the goodness of the pastor is naming this stuff. Like you as a pastor, if you're 
by any chance listening in your pastor, you are held doubly accountable for this behavior. If we don't name it, if we don't root it out, if this isn't repented for and brought to light and reconciled and healed and restored, then you have to answer to God for this behavior. Like it's better for all of us to put this on the table and deal with it. Yeah. I would say a gigantic glaring red flag if people think that naming sin and shining light in dark places and coming alongside people on the low end of the power dynamic is being against pastors or against the church. I would say that behavior right there is actually counterintuitive to yeah. Lord. You're going to have to trim your Bibles down to a few chapters at that point too, you know, because this is, this is sort of yes. the storyline, right? So, yes. um, and you know, I wonder sometimes if when people say you're, you, you're not a Christian, I'm like, I, I don't know what that means. And if you mean by Christian, this sort of conflation of Christianity and empire, then no, mm-hmm. I'm not like I, I follow, I often say I follow Jesus. I try yeah. to follow Jesus, whatever that means. But if that's what you mean by Christian, maybe I'm not. Mm. Yeah. You know? mm. I, I mean, that's yes, powerful. I absolutely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think too, like with the pastors, I remember when we were going through what we went through at our church, part of the, part of what the congregation went forward to the uh, body they brought in or the group they brought in to do the assessment was, Hey, we said, you know, we'll pay for, for, our pastor to just step away. We're going to pay, we'll pay his salary. We'll pay six months of his salary, whatever that may be. So he can, so he can step away. And at the time we probably didn't have enough vocabulary collectively to say, we also want to suggest he needs some sort of mental health support as well. And, you know, at the time, knowing our congregation, we would have probably said, we'll pay for that also. But what was striking to me is we were always told, we were told that, well, no, we can't, we can't even think about that because what is he going to do for a job? Even if you pay him, like, what is he going to do after he leaves here? But yet, you yeah. know, we were looking at our church, like Jonna and others who had, didn't have a job. Nobody had, they, they were without anything. I was like, I didn't so, get that luxury when I got fired. And, what am I going to do with it for I, a job? I just keep thinking like, what if we just flipped that yeah. and we were just open with this stuff to say, hey, we're all struggling pastors and victims, but the victims are the priority. Let's, as a church, pay, group our money together to pay for support, for yes. pay for people to be whole. Has anybody ever suggested that in any interaction you had, whether it be consulting or, or anything like that at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that behind the scenes, a number of us have talked about how how could we do that in a way that would sort of like even nationalize it or something like that, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I brought it up to a, a person with some wealth recently, even saying, Hey, you could with your wealth single-handedly change the game, <laughs> you know, change the conversation. We could, we could find a way, find someone of, you know, group a board with some integrity to set up some sort of fund that would make it possible for every survivor to get therapy, no matter what their need is. You know, Mm -hmm. I did that back in the day at the church I served at in San Francisco, where we, I came in and started a counseling center, was a pastor on staff. And one of the things I said was no one who comes through these doors is going to be turned away for counseling. And the diaconate, we reimagined the diaconate at the church. So what I'm shifting a little bit to say at a local level, uh, churches, pastors out there, you could do this. You could challenge your diaconate to say, or your elder, how, whatever your governing thing is, 
we're going to raise money every year so that we're not just giving people money for groceries or this or that, but we're going to make it possible for everyone to get therapy. We're going to make sure our pastors are regularly in therapy. But yeah, that has come up, uh, Jay, and that takes some work, like every one of these things, right? So we're in the, all of us, like you guys are interviewing, you're doing storytelling with survivors and victims, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, a lot of us are in this stage of of um, just uh, helping people sort of deal with their their wounds. You know, they're yes. they're bleeding out, and we're, and so that it's kind of reactive, if you know what I mean. Yep. And there's this kind of slow move to okay, so what's the proactive? A few of us talking mm-hmm. about NDAs, and uh, I know there are a couple of different. I don't want to work at cross purposes with other groups of people who are talking about getting rid of NDAs within churches. So how do we come together? That that's complicated, right? When mm-hmm. you you sometimes don't know what other people are doing. Scott McKnight, or he's in conversations, and Boz and Diane Langberg, who by the way is like the godmother. She, I was <laughs> there are groups of us sitting around listening to audio tapes of Diane back in the late nineties. So like Di- Diane, we're all just thinking Diane's thoughts after her and she's thinking <laughs> all God's thoughts after God. But you know, how do we turn that corner to these things that are more yeah. proactive? Right. So yeah. yeah. We feel we, I mean, Jay and I even, we feel that way. I feel like we're constantly, we're like, pulling putting our hand underwater and helping pull people out from underwater they're still shivering on the banks and like that i mean that's the goal of sacred wilderness is the goal is like can we get them into like triage care what you said triage care like get start getting these people help but it is daunting like it's unbelievably daunting because there's so many bodies behind the bus yes and it's heartbreaking and I mean, I think that would maybe be a good segue. I'd love, not every listener has read your book yet. And you have, and you have I mean, he has five books too, which we'll link to the to the website, but the one we're referencing, yeah. which is the most yeah. recent one, which is how narcissism came to church. So when yeah. narcissism yeah. comes to church, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And also Chuck has a lot of amazing articles too. And when I was going, when our church was going through stuff, I was just like glued to my computer reading every single thing you wrote that I could find. Just trying like, wait a second, this is exactly what I felt. This He put a word to something that I didn't know. And I mean, Jay also, I want to give him credit and I have in the past put, he gave me the words and he, Jay and our, my therapist said, this sounds like narcissistic abuse. Mm. And then you solidified yeah. and i am me. not <laughs> a therapist let me say but i've gone through years of therapy myself naming my own abuse and what i went through it took me probably 20 years and then once yeah. i started going through i had a great i've i have a great therapist but once we started really going through stuff and i was able to name it once i started to see it um it's you start to you just start to notice things and with jonah's you get a detector yeah <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. anyways, but yeah. Yeah. So with that, naming it for me was so healing as awful as it was. Cause I was like, this is just like a crap salad. of stuff. It's like soup of just grossness that we're swimming in right now. But there are some key characteristics I feel like that we see pretty often. And I'd love maybe to get your feedback or what would you say are some like preliminary warning signs that people could see just like giving some people some vocabulary around what does it look like to have someone maybe we 
again, narcissism can only be diagnosed by a professional. But what is like some narcissistic traits that people can be like, here's a red flag, here's a red flag. Open your eyes a little bit more to this behavior, you know? Yeah. So one of the things that I tried to do with with the book was to take the conversation out of kind of the um, caricature, the pure Mm -hmm. kind of caricature of narcissism that you get, especially from from the the Bible of psychology, the DSM, right? Where where we talk about grandiosity, attention seeking, entitlement, and a lack of empathy. Yeah, there's Mm -hmm. sort of this textbook definition of of a grandiose narcissist, right? And to say, no, actually narcissism uh, shows up in a number of different faces, right? And so that would be the first thing that I'd say is for your listeners, when, when you're thinking about narcissism, don't only think of the kind of dominant bullying kind of leader. Yeah, It's a kind of uh, a ma- manipulation that happens in any number of different forms. That's why I, I, I use the Enneagram. Yeah. That was completely suggestive and like there's no there's no research behind you know except for my own work uh over two decades really with this right but i was like i'm putting this out here i might be putting my neck on the line but i hope uh, and a number i mean i really haven't gotten pushback so many people come back around to say oh wow so it shows up in the kind of vacillating push pull of the four it shows up Mm -hmm. in the kind of high kind bless your heart kind of helpfulness of the two. It shows up in the sort of condescending intellectualism of, of the five, right? And in the hypervigilance of the I mean, we could go through each one of them and, yeah. and talk about it, right? As if to say, narcissism has many faces. And I learned this years ago from, uh, from a book called Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft. Recently, he's come under fire for some things that I haven't fully vetted myself. It's uh, mm-hmm. a little bit discouraging, but it was a really helpful book where he named different kinds of men who uh, show up in abusive relationships, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful. I would put that in the hands of women way back in the day, and they'd say, oh, so my husband is the abusive people pleaser, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. He's Mr. Right. He had these names for, you know, for these guys, right? So I do, I do want to say that while, you know, your grandiose narcissist loves the stage, maybe more interpersonally aggressive bullying, you do have the kind of passive, you know, passive aggressive behind the scenes, smugly superior kind of narcissists that show up. And, and so we've got to just be attuned to the different ways that they, they uh, mm-hmm. show their face, right? Yeah. Was that where you were kind of getting at? Yeah, I mean, that's super helpful. I think um, I'd love to know if there's anything where you you could like speak to somebody that's just in a congregation right now. And you could be like, hey, have your what would you be your suggestion to someone who's like, I would like to be able to be aware if this is happening? Is there anything you could tell people like look out for? Or is it kind of maybe what I'm getting at is that we all just need to be fully educated on this. Yeah. <laughs> like, Yeah. Well, so, you know, the education confirms, I would say it confirms what your body is already telling you. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this, this uh, idea in the world of trauma, psychology, neurobiology called neuroception. It's this idea that our body has a kind of awareness of what's going on before we're sort of cognitively aware. There's a kind of like, Ugh, you know, or however it shows up, right? Yes. And, and I, I mean, I can't tell you how many people will say, I had that like, Ugh, mm-hmm. for 
five years for yeah. 10 years. And then I read Scott and Laura's book and um, I, I started seeing like they were naming some things and oh, that was it. Or I read Wade's book on, you know, and he talked about image management. I started seeing some things. I, I would say um, the old phrase, trust your gut. Like if there's something inside of you that says there, there's something off here, mm-hmm. talk to someone about it. The, const- the constellation of narcissism within your pastor or within your system, how that shows up, how abuse shows up can- might be very different. So I might describe like a, a church and-, and you might not experience that. You might be in a really small church right now. Uh, well, mm-hmm. There could be narcissism here because our pastor is a pastor of a 60 person church. Nope. Hear it all the time. See it all the time because our church is the true church. Uh, we're small because we've been doctrinally, doctrinally faithful. Uh, the Lord has preserved us from the outsiders and from culture and from Hollywood and from the liberals and the, you know, and that's why we're small. Mm-hmm. So I, I could give I give people care. I mean, you guys read the book. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got yeah. the ten yeah. characteristics and then all that could be helpful. But as a therapist, I'll often say, "What what's your gut telling you? Yeah. Doesn't feel safe." He doesn't feel safe. And I feel crazy because I brought this up. Like I brought this up to someone and they said, oh, no, 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 no. He's so gifted. He, he'd never do anything like that. But still, there's something in me that says, I'm just not sure I can trust him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's weird, too, like when when you have those those feelings and you're you're met with so much resistance or excuses for other people. Yeah. Like it makes you even more confused. But I also like the more I reflect on that, I also think about how like the culture, how we've baked all of this into the culture and how it's really hard to just peel it apart because so many people Mm -hmm. are immersed in it and don't realize it. Like they don't realize it. Their response of like, oh, you must be wrong, Jonna, is so traumatizing to the victim. Like it hurts. Like I would love to hear like a church and leadership that when they have a story come forward, just acknowledge it and say, we hurt with you. We we lament with you. Like, how can we make you, how can we help make this whole? But we don't, we don't get that. And um, I think that's discouraging, but you know, what's crazy. I don't know if it's crazy. What's what I think is a God thing is the more stories we hear, the more our storytellers come forward, the more they give me hope because they yeah. they are the people that are offering other victims the space to say, we'll lament with you. We hear you. We acknowledge you. And they're the ones that when people reach out to them from these churches and say, we were wrong and we apologize, they are open to the dialogue. With these, yeah, they you know yeah. they didn't abuse. These weren't the people that were, of course, uh, the abusers, but they were ones that minimized the stories or excused it away. And like yeah. that's the beauty of God to me. I mean, that's a yeah, that it is. You know, and I I think part part of this part of what gets confusing. I, so I had a call. Let's just say in the last few days. I I mean I don't I'm not going to say anything that sort of outs the situation or something like that. But it's. You know, oftentimes we'll talk about this happening in more sort of patriarchal, authoritarian, even complementarian contexts, you know, because these are places where men tend to hold power. White men tend to hold power. They abuse that power. They're insulated. They're protected. There's little accountability. Right. But I got this. I, I sometimes do these one off calls with someone who already seeing a therapist. But, hey, 
I want to sort of ask you particularly about how I experience narcissistic abuse, right? From a very progressive church. So we're anti-racist, we're fully inclusive of LGBT community. We are, you know, so ticks off all the boxes, but then starts to describe all the same things that, you know, I, I sort of list out in the book and all the same things in an interior sort of neuroceptive way of, I don't feel safe. And when we boil, like when we get down to it, even though the theology boxes are different than they might be in Acts 29, this lead pastor is still operating in the same way, is still bullying. The messages might be anti-racist or inclusive or whatever it is, but functionally still operating like a bully, still operating manipulatively, still hot and cold, still you're in with me if you're loyal to me and you're out if you're disloyal to me. And so that's where I want to say to you, uh, to anyone, you know, regardless of theology or context or denomination, we may see it a bit more. I tell the large majority of my calls come from more conservative fundamentalistic spaces, right? But um, you're going to see it in all kinds of different spaces. So so this this woman was calling basically to, to have a call just to say, this is what my God is telling me, but everyone around me says it couldn't be him because we're in such a generous, creative, hospitable, progressive space. Yeah, no, it's it, it can happen there too. That is why Scott and Laura's book is so awesome because yeah. they actually tell us how it all feeds each other. Like how does this toxic system or toxic person continue to be protected? And we see that a ton in our stories and in the culture of Acts 29. Really, like, SBC is not far away from <laughs> Acts 29. A lot of us are SBC, too, or yeah, joined, yeah. or Bethlehem. All of it. It's all kind of the same white patriarchal spaces. But what we see is this very... I guess it's not subtle, this discipleship of congregations and leaders to always believe the best, mm-hmm. always submit, protect. You're, if you, oh, do you have like three more people that want to say that they have, that they see that in that person? Cause they're a pastor. So you better, you better be careful when you're making an, an allegation or when you're, when you're saying that you're experiencing this stuff. So there's so much fear. And then there's also so much fear to be- It's scary to believe someone when they tell you something is happening to them. But I will say for me, myself, and for every person I've spoken with, by and large, the most painful part of them coming forward and saying something's not right here. I've experienced abuse. This leader is not maybe trustworthy because of this. The most painful part is the community responding like they are the enemy now and not coming along that side them and supporting them or caring for them. Yeah, that's right. It's part and parcel of the systemic problem, right? That it's not just the narcissistic leader, but it's a there's a the feeder system right? Do you know the work of Gerald Post? He was a former CIA profiler that talks about the kind of feeder system. There's a mirror-hungry narcissist. So you, the congregation, you're my mirror, but there's the ideal-hungry follower. And the Mm -hmm. ideal-hungry follower says, I get my sense of significance, belonging, connection 
from from you. This is these are the people who are like, but the fruit. But it's such a great church, and we're serving the community because I'm plugged in. My ego is plugged in mm-hmm. to the leader, to the system, to the cause, to the whatever it is, and so. You bring your story to someone who's plugged in in that way. Uh, just imagine, you know, this is just an ordinary congregation member, but it's like, but this is the church where, you know, my son goes to youth group and they've got the great, you know, worship night every one. It's, it's really hard to be heard when a person's identity and ego is sort of wrapped up in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a force, there, there are energies at work, forces at work here, right, that we're sort of up against. And I don't, I'll often tell people, guard your heart, be very careful with who you trust your story, because it's likely that if you share your story with that ordinary congregation member, they're going to send an email to the pastor saying, I'm really worried about mm-hmm. Sally. You know, she came to me with a story and, you know, obviously the devil has just gotten hold of her and, you know, now you're off to the races. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's happened. You're gossiping. Yeah, that's happened. What have you ever like we we experienced this when when the Acts 29 brought in another network to investigate the allegations, which we then found out <laughs> that the network was tied to someone at Acts 29 like in your experience, when there are abuse allegations, what is the proper way to how do what is the proper way to engage a third party to investigate allegations, or what should be the proper way? Yeah, well, I mean, I I do think that if that that's a big question, right? And there there's sort of a I'll 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 teach my students about this, you know, about because um, there are different kinds of uh, abuse, there are different kinds of reporting that are necessary, mandatory mm-hmm. reporting. Uh, in most states with any number of different kinds of, of situations, children and elders in particular, right? And so, but let's just say, you know, we're, we're talking about kind of some of the situations that we've seen in Acts 29 and SBC, where there is this kind of general pattern of an abuse of power within a staff. Uh, let's say people have left their bodies behind the bus. You guys know a little something about that. Oftentimes, as you say, it's, well, our denomination, you know, two or three dudes, you know, I, I know two or three dudes who are part of the, this, you know, part of the denomination and they could come in and they can help us out or this part of the network. And, and I think this is where it's so important to find a third party independent investigator. Um, we just saw recently with, you know, Christianity Today with SBC guideposts did a really good job with that. I think grace, godly response to abuse in Christian environments, uh, they do this now. Wade Mullen does some of this. Uh, I could tell you because I've sent folks to them. I used to do a little bit of this. And I'm not, I've got sort of in over my head. Folks who do this are kind of overwhelmed right now because they're getting yeah. a lot of calls. That said, you got to, you got to call an independent third party invest investigator mm-hmm. to come in. Someone that doesn't have, isn't paid by the church. Um, doesn't, isn't on the rolls, uh, isn't a part of leadership, doesn't have a buddy that's what I often hear is let me call my buddy, yep. you know? Yep. yep. There's a I lot know, of buddies. <laughs> I know a dude, he's in a different church, but we used to work together and he's really good with this stuff. You know, no, there's a lot of dudes. There's a lot of buddies. Uh, let's not do that. Yeah. And that, I think that I, I find that, you know, disheartening when like that there isn't more of an emphasis of like, it, almost it seems like if you're just going to bring in a guy, you know, Right. Or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe if it's a egalitarian church, a girl, you know, right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that it, it's almost like you're not really giving the value or worth to the stories. You're just kind of saying, I need to check a box. I need to check a box so I can move on. At least that's what it feels like. And in our experience, yeah. it, it yeah. really was just, let's check a box. Or, or he, here's another tough one. And I'm not going to call out um, the particular organization because may, maybe there's some goodness there, but like there are processes that let's just characterize them as like peacemaking processes that are about let's just help you hear one, one another and reconcile. Um, you see what I'm getting at here? Because mm-hmm. others oh, is just a disagreement, you know, between two people who love the Lord. And so let's just get you in the room and you apologize and you apologize and, you know, God will do the rest, which absolutely dismisses power dynamics, and harm. And, and so the reason we want to bring in someone like an independent investigator like Grace or Wade or Guidepost or whatever is because they're they're going to tease out abuses of power. They're going to tease out long-term patterns, not just a one-off this happened, but they're going to say, what's beneath the waterline? What, what are the patterns? And how are the, you know, how is the polity and the bylaws implicated in that? You know, how do they actually reinforce some of the harm that's being done within the system? What are the implicit assumptions, theological and cultural assumptions? They're going to tease out those lower level kinds of um, implications that are dismissed when you just do peacemaking. Yeah. A lot mm-hmm. of, we got, and we, a lot of our storytellers get the Matthew, Matthew 18, you know, that's right. And it's just mm-hmm. the way it's used. Um, we looked at the uh, Temis report, which was from Crowded House, which was a separate organization, thirty one eight, which was in the UK, and they gave a definition of spiritual abuse from a from uh, they quoted a book that was uh, basically about spiritual abuse, and you know from their quote, it talks about misusing scripture, basically keep someone in power is a definite part of the definition mm-hmm. of spiritual abuse, and the way that we hear Matthew eighteen pitched. It is not really for reconciliation. It is to keep the power dynamic dynamic in play so that the abuser mm-hmm. or the the person yeah. accused of allegations is able to stay in that position of power. And, and it's just, it breaks my heart, like as a believer, yeah. that, we, that that beautiful section of the Bible is being used to hurt people or to keep people in a position of pain. Yeah. So... And it also generally, in my experience, keeps sin at a very kind of general level. You know, I know, I know I'm kind of, I can be kind of grumpy at times. I know that I'm kind of hard to work with at times. I mean, but it's my passion for the kingdom, for the gospel. I mean, it's because I'm, I'm so uh, energized for, right? Whereas, whereas the kind of process that we're talking about gets really specific, and this is what gets people nervous, you know, because mm-hmm. when you start to get really specific about patterns and how they show up, how often they show up, with whom, well, well then, yeah, th- there's got to be some kind of accountability. Um, so a lot of these guys will say, I've got a profound theology of sin, and I take my sin seriously, and my wife knows my sin, and my brothers know my sin, but when you get down to it and, and you know, because I've been in these rooms where I say, but there's this and this and this and this, and then, then it gets really uncomfortable. And then that's when we have to actually pull you out of power for a season or maybe yeah. forever. You know, there are implications. There's accountability. Why do you think this is something that we wrestle with all the time? I don't like to me, this is black and white. Like there there are um, qualifications for a pastor in the Bible, like God gave them to us. We didn't make them up. Yeah. And 
there's like certain qualifications that if they if they're iffy on them, it's okay because they're a good teacher. And like, at what point do we say we have to pull this person out of power? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about that because you know when you think about qualification, you go go to First Timothy three or wherever you know where we where we normally go to say this is yeah. the you know the this is the these are the features of an elder, right? Or a deacon, right? And if you take that as sort of a, as a grouping of, of what we'd want, this is a person of high character. You know, there are individual traits that you might be able to pull out of their ability to teach, hospitality, mm-hmm. manages household, stuff like that. But like, I would say, when I take that as a whole, this is a person of high character. But I, I put that alongside assessments, like church planning assessments that I've seen, where we're not we're not looking necessarily for a person of high character in terms of their temperament, their gentleness, their kindness, their hospitality, their generosity, words that are used in these lists. You know, it's it, it's a whole different a set of qualifications. And that's kind of the part of the problem, right, mm-hmm. is that we've gotten away from what I would say exemplifies the character of Christ, yes. the character of humility self-giving love, you know, Philippians 2, kenosis, self-giving love, humility, self-emptying to a, he's got this and he's got this and he's got this and he's got this. And that's just a problem. We're, we're setting ourselves up for someone of, of low character oftentimes, but high giftedness to come in and maybe have short-term success, but uh, long-term harm. I was going to say something to that, Jonna, before you ask your next question, because two of the stories or two or three of the stories we had were from uh, men um, and that were past. Some of them were, um, I guess, in a position where they were on staff or or elders or about to be elders. And they were very pastoral in the way that they cared and they loved for their community. And it was evident in their stories. And they were literally chewed up and spit out by these churches. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about a pastor, you know, I I definitely I go to Jesus first and how he treated others and how he interacted with others and and what he did with those disciples. And when I talk to these men, like I'm like these guys are pastors. They love people mm-hmm. well, but there's not a space for them. And it yeah. and it's just so like it breaks my heart and I go back to what you said Chuck about maybe it's it's doing something like a by a bivocational type of calling in the future where you're a pastor, but you're also working down the street at whatever. And I, I'm like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that would be great. But I also know that there's a lot of people that jobs and salaries are dependent on kind of the church system. So, yeah. Yeah. This is born out of, by the way, you think about, uh, I think I can say this. I think I've done it long enough and I've been in these circles. A lot of this, movement, church planning movement stuff is born out of a lot of anxiety. And and I think about, let's just say a big chunk of, of what we're talking about are reformed circles, you know, quote unquote, yes. reform. that's a big term, right? Where we believe in terms of checkboxes that God is sovereign, you know, that God is in control. And yet the theology of God's sovereignty is betrayed by such an anxious way of, mm-hmm. of organizing a movement, planning churches you know, with, with the sense that it's up to us. Mm-hmm. And I and I think, you know, n- the reason so many of us were drawn, you know, this may be a generational thing, but there, a lot of us were drawn, my generation, to Eugene Peterson. I think in part, 
And I remember mm-hmm. church planners saying, Eugene Peterson, that guy is, he's not helpful at all. That guy didn't do anything. He's lazy. He's not doing anything for the kingdom, which is kind of ludicrous if you think about it. But there, there's a sense of this faithfulness where you are that is akin to what I talked about earlier in that book, that A Patient Ferment of the Early Church, you know, this sense of, I'm going to go to my community. I'm going to stay there for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I'm going to get to know my neighbors rather than sort of parachuting in. I remember some of these in San Francisco, some of these pastors literally, I mean, not literally parachuting in, but they might as well <laughs> then not taking any time to get to know what, who's my community, who's my neighbor, what are, what are other pastors doing? But, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're literally sort of put on a bus with a big staff from L.A., sent to San Francisco, and you're going to plant this church, and we're going to take the kingdom of, you know, the city of San Francisco for Jesus. I'm like, oh, my, what are we doing? Yeah. Going to war. <laughs> we're going to war, you know? And, and yeah, a lot of people are left bloodied and bruised. Yep. Yep. And also— Something I know that I'm looking for in any church community going forward that I am, am I plant roots in is like an excitement for curiosity. Let's ask weird hard questions and let's be okay with it being gray and let's let's work towards beauty and goodness and truth together and like not be scared and mm-hmm. that is something that we see all the time like if you ask the wrong question, seriously, it's like a, if you just ask the wrong question, you're the enemy now. Mm-hmm. God loves, I think all the time about our kids and like, I love when they ask me weird questions. And a lot of times those questions can be scary questions. <laughs> like how the heck, I don't even have an answer for this for you. But I love that. I love to see their brains working. And I think God created us this way. He loves that. He's a good dad. So why are we scared of questions? That is not good. That's not healthy. That's not a space that is confident in the Lord. If you're scared yeah. of a question. Even John Calvin said our best theology is baby talk, right? So if our best theology is baby talk, can we just have a little bit of humility? You know, yeah. there's not, there's not, there's a lot of certainty and addiction to certainty, which is part and parcel of, I think the narcissistic personality I'm right. You're wrong. I know you don't know. I'm in. You're out. Right? Yeah. It's wearying. What What would you say to if you're if you know some of our storytellers or people who listen maybe in a church setting right now where they do not feel safe and they do not know what to do next? Yeah. What would be your suggestions to them? Yeah. So I mean, I think first I would find a trauma-informed counselor mm-hmm. who will treasure your story. Um, mm-hmm. You honor you, um, see the dignity in you, the worth in you, the pain in you, and treasure your story and spend some time there. Don't be in a rush to have to uh, whistle blow or anything like that. I think mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes that comes out of totally appropriate to whistle blow at times, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not against it at all, mm-hmm. but I think sometimes our desire to say something comes out of our kind of autonomic nervous systems survival mechanism, right? It, it's sort of like mm-hmm. a, I got to, I got to do something, I got to say something, I got to, and and treat yourself kindly first. You know, get to a really good therapist and get some care, and then you know I, I'll I'll do this work with folks and we'll discern together. Like what? So 
what are you supposed to do? Mm. Maybe it's just leaving. Maybe it's having a conversation with a friend or an elder. Maybe it's beginning to talk to some other folks to see what their experiences are, you know, but let's do it in a way that treats you really kindly so Mm -hmm. that uh, you're not constantly re-traumatized in every conversation, you know, so you remain in your window of tolerance. And so I, I will work with folks and we'll kind of, we'll do some of this internal work, right? And then say, okay, so what are you ready for? I think I'm ready to maybe have a conversation. We've got, my, my husband and I have good friends and a good friend is an elder. I think I'm ready for that conversation. Okay, well, let's set it up. You know, we'll, we'll go through all, plan all the details really well. How are you feeling? What's going on internally? And just to make sure the whole way that you're being kind and compassionate to yourself They'll have the conversation. Maybe she'll come back and she'll say, I wasn't ready for that. I was really activated, really triggered. I cried. It didn't go as well as I wanted it to go. They didn't believe me. Okay, let's just, we'll slow it down, but get care. Mm. That would be a big, big thing for me at a first level thing. What about the people that maybe they're in care and they're, you know, they're out of their church and they, they just don't feel comfortable or safe going back to a church? but they're, yeah. they're still a believer. They're trying to find community, but they just can't find it. The, that's called exile in the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are really uh, kind of pain-riddled psalms mm-hmm. and words from the prophets that speak to uh, the reality of wilderness, the reality of exile, the reality of loneliness, the reality of abandonment. Um, so keep company with Scripture. Keep company with others who are in exile with you. There are plenty out there who don't find the church to be safe right now or a church to be safe. And so, but you're not alone and you're not crazy and you're not weird. Like if scripture (laughs) devotes so much time, like literally um, Jesus was in exile. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate exilic moment of Jesus on the cross, you know, abandoned Mm -hmm. by friends, crucified. But I mean, so yeah, it's painful. It's lonely. It's hard. It's uh, doesn't feel very hopeful. It's powerless. But you you find your resources. You find your therapist. You find some friends. You find your way to those passages mm-hmm. in scripture that you probably are less familiar with because you know you probably navigated to the happy ones by your your former pastor. So yeah, or if it was a bad one, it was maybe twisted <laughs> to be yeah. about a particular staff member or something. Oh yeah, yeah, I got that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we could go into that. (laughs) Well, I I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And I think it segues well. So something within the Acts 29 network, and I can I'm gonna just gonna commentate on it because it's public knowledge right now. They're doing this whole big like fifty thousand dollar grants to new church planters, and we've revamped our assessment process and there's a movement that accountability is abuse and we're not abusing people. I know all these guys and they're not abusive. And it's just like so dizzying. Yeah. One, I think from this conversation, we've all decided maybe you guys should just put that 50K towards therapy costs and start sending victims to therapy and pastors. But two, in that same time frame of that article coming out, there was this whole big thing, like everybody's leaving the church because they want to sin and deconstruction is sexy and everybody just wants to go live their sinful lives. Yeah. But Jay and I talk quite a bit about the fact that 
our personal assessment of the situation is people are being run over in the church and they're leaving in droves because it's not safe. And they're seeing the inconsistencies between what the Jesus they know, the the God in in their Bibles, even the God that they're taught about on a Sunday and the actions and behavior of leadership. And those things are so inconsistent. So what do you think, if we could sit here and just like dream, what do you think it looks like to actually rebuild? Yeah, that's a great question. And 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 probably, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to say, I'll offer a couple of thoughts, but I'd love to be in on the dreaming for the next 10, 15, 20 years with people like you guys, you yeah. know, and, um, and, and others, and particularly people not like me, you know, I, God help us that yeah, send people not like me to that conversation to dream bigger dreams. But because yeah, even with the deconstruction conversation, isn't it interesting, you know, that we're sort of pointing to them and them, they're walking away from the church. Well, just to use the kind of your, your, the title of your podcast and stuff, it's like the bus just drove over you. And now you're walking away from the bus because the bus is not safe. But the bus driver is saying, it's your fault for walking away from us. You know, it's Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. I mean, that's trauma at work for a lot of folks, right? A lot of the deconstructing that's happening is in and around profound pain. Um, I I get that there there are people out there who walk away for maybe more shallow reasons or silly reasons and stuff like that. But I think that's what, what they're by and large wanting to kind of put most people in that basket, right? Rather than saying, no, actually there there's a collective trauma at work here right now. And this has been going on for any number of years. And so any, when I talk about this, I'll give you my little slice of this. There's more that I would say, but I'm going to give you one little inspiring story from church history of a woman who I consider to be the greatest 16th century reformer. You know, we've got John Calvin and Martin Luther up on, you know, up on the um, Mount Rushmore of, of reformers, but St. Teresa of Avila was a thousand miles mm-hmm. south in Spain. She was experiencing some of the problems, abuses, inconsistencies of the church of her day. And she started a reform movement within the church. Uh, as a woman, you don't do that. As a woman, you uh, in the 16th century patri- patriarchal Spain, you can expect that male inquisitors half your age will track you down and you know interrogate you. And that's what she had over and over and over again, interrogated by men who were not as qualified as her, as wise as her. But she started a reform movement. She kept on kept. St. John of the Cross, who wrote The Dark Night of the Soul, was kind of like her disciple. He was thrown in monk prison for um, his part in the movement. She was never thrown in prison or anything like that. But she formed a smaller community, or actually smaller communities. So not the big sort of convent community of the day, but within her reform movement, smaller communities oriented around the Gospels, oriented around the Sermon on the Mount, you know, sim- simplifying, sort of simplifying the, the message in a sense and saying, we're going to sort of, we're going to sort of orient ourselves around the Gospel and orient ourselves around um, the words of Jesus and the Gospel of Jesus. And then uh, for her, there was this, she sort of broke down the authority, the, the kind of the the hierarchy of the day. Let's just put it that way. And she said, I need you all to know that you can have direct access to Jesus. Mm. The priests sort of in between who hold the authority 
they've shown that they don't, they're not responsible with the authority that has been given to them. Um, they've abused yeah. their authority. But we can pray to Jesus and have direct access. Remember, remember, Martin Luther and John Calvin were saying the same thing where they were. They were talking about the priesthood of all believers, right? And so she created these smaller communities. Just imagine smaller communities of women and men gathering together, asking themselves where they are, Topeka, Los Angeles, Phoenix, West Michigan. How do we follow Jesus right where we are with our group of 10, 15, 20 people? Let's pray um, and and let's invite the Spirit to animate our work. We don't need permission from, you know, some in-between. I think there's something to that. I think that that's a lot what the early church looked like. Mm -hmm. People sort of doing local, faithful, local work in smaller groups. And I think that's why St. Teresa, I don't know if you guys have done any work with her. She wrote the interior castle. No. But she's a sort of inspiration to me. And that's why I say she's my my favorite 16th century reformer. But this was happening in the 16th century, this massive reformation, right? We're in a different kind of reformation and a different kind of reckoning now. So what's it look like for us to gather together, maybe in smaller groups around the gospel, Mm -hmm. following Jesus? What does it look like to be faithful? Let's pray directly to Jesus and and let's let's see how the reckoning sorts itself out. That's a very simplistic mm-hmm. answer, but that's a first shot. Yeah. I think that that is really important though. For to for people to hear you say that out loud is important because I think many of us our gut says that's wrong. Like we're not allowed to just have that be how we encounter church community right now to hear out loud. Like there's permission in that and there's even beauty in that and there can be goodness and God can move in that is actually really freeing, I think, to probably a lot of our listeners and me included, like to be able to say, it's okay if church for us looks like gathering around a dinner table once a week with people we trust that love the Lord and talking about Jesus. I I mean... (laughs) I go back, like I read a book and I've heard the title of the book is by Bruce. I think it was Bruce Longnecker. I think that was what it was. It was talking about like a fictional book between a a guy in Rome who was writing uh, letters to Luke. It was like 70 yeah. AD. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah I love the book. It was amazing. But I was reading it and like they were talking about, you know, this little gathering and it was so simplistic to, we had a meal we took uh, a list of needs for the week of the community, which was like 10 people and someone played a harp and then that was it. <laughs> and like, yeah. I just think like that's so <laughs> beautiful, like harp someone included, harp. like yeah. if it just went to smaller groups of people meeting together. I also think about like in where I live, there's five churches within a two mile radius of me. They're old churches with hardly probably, you know, not, not, you know, hundreds of people go there anymore. Like we don't need more churches. We have buildings. What would it even look like to just go back to local churches and cancel out the denominations, cancel out everything and just meet and eat together and talk about the things going on in our community. We have yeah. the infrastructure to do that. We don't need new bright, shiny things, but yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, th- like I said, th- we, this could go in so many different directions, and I would want to dream alongside people who um, are thinking in a very different way. I mean, I've been so I, I mean, I, I've been a part of the problem, right? And 
now mm-hmm. I'm almost 52 years old and we're at this place of reckoning. So in many ways, my, my body, my being has been sort of formed for ministry that got us to where we are right now. And so yeah. I'd really like people who are maybe a little younger and people who are not uh, white males to have a say in this, right? People who've mm-hmm. lived in the margins. And I think, you know, I, I remember being in a conversation like this uh, with a, a black pastor who had had the promise of in a larger mega church of leading a multi-site. And that mm-hmm. blew up when he was given no real power. You know, it was all for show. It was all performative performative diversity and multiculturalism. And so I remember him saying to me, I wonder what it would be like, let's just take the $50,000 from Acts 29 to take that and to say, I got a check and I'm going to take this with me and we're going to go to, we're going to go to LA and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get with a a church that has been there for a long time, has been doing really good work. We're going to say, how can we come alongside you right where you are, learn from you and so there are different ways to slice this up. That was his thought, you know, is what if, yes. what if we move toward the margins? That for me mm-hmm. is still really uncomfortable because I I like the privilege that comes with uh, being a tenured professor at a seminary and not having mm-hmm. my world disrupted. If my world goes away, I lose a, not a great salary, but I lose a salary. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? But yeah. so, but I do, I have to, I've had to get to the point where I pray for the kind of deconstruction, if you want to call it that, reckoning that may impact my job, may impact my denomination, you know, and not in a kind of like masochistic kind of way, but in a kind of death leads to resurrection kind of way. Mm. Yeah. You really trust that that's the way God uh, does things, right? Well, and I I finished uh, a couple weeks ago, Dante Fires, uh, Dante Stewart's book, Shouting in the Fire. And um, and that book's, I mean, it's really good. But one of the things that I took away from that book is he references his his um, his time up his uh, upbringing in the black church, and then we tried to break away from the black church, and then he ultimately came back. and is a It's a beautiful story. It's mm-hmm. also a very sad story. Um, but um, what I took away is like even in like going back to people of diversity, like people of color, who have been exiled, who have gone through suffering. Yeah. And have such amazing faith and strong yeah. faith, like learning from them to like if I'm in the SBC going to people of color and say, here are the keys to the kingdom. Teach yeah. us, teach us how to be a better organization. Now, that would never happen. But like, I do think that's what it's going to take yeah. because because like that's the type of faith we need. Um, you know, my mm-hmm. faith growing up as a as a, a man and, and a privileged person, uh, and when I was a kid, um, if I took my faith as a kid and I planted it somewhere in the world where there was conflict, it would shatter because it was built on things that were not real. I we all need that type of faith that is comfortable in the margins, is comfortable in the suffering, yeah. and we have people and people groups mm-hmm. who have lived it for decades and centuries in this country yeah, and that's right. we need them. We need to give them yeah. the keys. So, yeah. but yeah. that's why I think I, you know, I, I do it to particularly in reform context to kind of press some buttons. But when I say that St. Teresa is my favorite 16th century reformer, yeah, make people mad. <laughs> what does that mean? I love it as a yeah. woman in this call. Yeah. I'll just say, I was yeah. like, yeah, but just to sort of say, um, to intentionally push some buttons to, to disrupt a bit, you know, but to say, 
we're not talking about a woman, you know, um, some witchy woman to get back to what we were talking about <laughs> earlier, right? Uh, you know, we're talking yeah. about a 16th century nun, you know, we're not, we're not, mm -hmm. uh, so, but these, there are these stories throughout church history that if we listen and listen well, like what we're going through right now isn't brand new. There are these, these moments where we have opportunities to sort of reprioritize to elevate people of, of um, you know, who's sort of situated differently than us. And I think this is just one of those moments, you know? So it's up to me. I, I'm really grateful that you would have me on this podcast. And and in all seriousness, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to write a book on this stuff. But mm -hmm. the reality is, is even in talking to a couple of publishers who said, oh, we've got to, th listen to this, we've got to capitalize on the narcissism book <laughs> and um, give you another opportunity to write on some, you know, adjacent subject and, you know, really kind of, cause, cause the rise and fall of Mars Hill on this and that and the other. Mm -hmm. No, I think I, I, I did what I did in a book and, you know, some, someone else and preferably a woman or a person of color is going to amplify that and write more. And, but I, you know, I, that's fine. And I, I do think that that's, that's something that, um, uh, people like me are going to probably have to do more and more to our own peril, you know, in terms of our, mm -hmm. our nice tenured positions and salaries and stuff like that. I, I don't know how all that's going to, you know, bear out, but I do think, I, I don't want to be hopeless here, but I do think it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if we're all hearing the stories, right, if the number of in, inbox emails that I get, DMs, stuff like that, or any indication, we're only scraping the surface of of the kind of you know, now Christianity Today, SBC just had their big report a few years ago. It was um, Ravi Zach a couple of years ago, Ravi Zacharias, Jean Vanier, who's a hero of mine. Um, I mean, it's, it, this is big and this is like the next couple of decades. So let's just say like, I'm, you guys are going to be visiting me in a nursing home. Um, <laughs> Hey, remember when we did that podcast? No, I, I, uh, you I don't, don't remember. remember. <laughs> yeah, you're, we're going to be visiting in a nursing home and still talking about this. I think that's how Ugh. massive this is, you Ugh. guys. It's gross. Yeah. Uh, gross. I agree too. For anybody out there, I always come back to this and I keep thinking about it always. Every time we do an episode, every time we talk to another person who is on this journey with us, the 31-8 report out of Crowded House where they talk about daring to listen. They, they said so much, basically, this is a paraphrase, so much could have been different if we had just dared to listen. Mm. And I just want to encourage you if you're out there, uh, one, thank you for listening and daring to listen to this type of conversation because I know it can be scary. But also, there's probably stories in your own community that need you to have the courage and dare to listen to them too. I did not find Jesus in a church or a community of believers. I found him through the kindness of my sister who saw and understood my loneliness and depression. She did not have an agenda, she just told me a story. And that story made me want to know more about Jesus. However, before I entered high school, my family had moved 10 times, lived in eight different states, and I had attended eight different schools. So when I became a Christian at the age of 14, I did not have a wise and compassionate faith community to learn from. So I devoured the Bible and saturated myself with mainstream popular Christian books to help me understand what I was actually reading in the Bible. 
The authors were pastors or people deemed as significant in the evangelical community. I trusted them, and I believed that they had some level of wisdom or insight that I did not have yet. These books shaped my interpretations of Scripture and my view on my purpose or mission on this earth. I prayed all of their prayers, read all their devotionals, bought into the Christian culture by wearing Christian t-shirts. I even tossed out all my music and only listened to Christian artists. That one definitely still haunts me. I witnessed to my friends and stood up when others were going the wrong way in life. I honestly believed that how I was living was not only right, but God's will. I was convinced that my worldview was the right one. My prayers were the ones God heard. How I interpreted scripture was the correct way, and that the Jesus I worshiped was the only true Jesus. But I was wrong. I had an unhealthy, arrogant, and privileged attitude to scripture, the gospel, and my place in society and in God's story. I was not following the Jesus that my sister introduced me to. I was following a Jesus that was created by men who desired authority over transparency, injustice over accountability, and influence over empathy. Maybe we are in a season of reckoning. And if we are, then I say, let it burn down all of our sanctimonious idols and temples. Let it expose those who preach unity and justice from the stage in their books and in places of influence, but create structures and hierarchies that prevent any person of color from ever having an equal seat at the table. Let it cut through our interpretations and doctrine that promotes and protects misogyny, biases, privilege, white supremacy, and encourages a culture that ignores those on the fringes. Let it flame up in our congregations and communities and bring to light that we have not loved our neighbors. We have closed our doors and hearts and never even dared to listen to those who are marginalized, abused, and oppressed. Let it bring us to our knees and faces and repentance. Reform our hearts, open up our ears and eyes, and return us to the feet of the Good Shepherd, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For John Harris, I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.